Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. We hope everybody is liking, sharing, commenting, and subscribing to our content. And we hope that the, the message that we are trying to convey, the information that's being conveyed, is stuff that you're finding interesting. And if there's anything, if you have any feedback, or anything you'd like to let us know, please let us know in the comment section below on other speakers and, and people to comment. And we want to thank you, everyone, for joining us for almost the one-year anniversary of our channel, of, of our podcast. Um, today, we're joined by uh, Brother Paul, who is um, the founder of the YouTube channel Blogging Theology, which has which conducts academic discussions on a number of topics related to religion, um, and it's something that I've found highly beneficial, and many people have found many uh, have found beneficial, and it seems that. It's going to increase um, in its view count and, you know, the barakah, inshallah, that Allah puts in it. So thank you for joining us, Brother Paul. Yes, I welcome as salam. And it's a, a great priv a privilege and pleasure to be with you, Ahmed, uh, today. It's a great privilege to be here with you today, Brother Paul. Um, just wanting to start, you know, one thing I'm curious about is what what was the beginning of your, of your, of your, da'wah, of your entry into the da'wah scene? Um, how did that begin? Now you, you weren't born a Muslim, um, you know. You, you 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 converted to the faith. Um, do you mind just sharing that? Because I I've seen some of your content beforehand, and I've seen some of the stuff I think at speakers' corners. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, you know, if you could just you know briefly tell us how what was your inspiration for all of this? Yeah, well, it's a it's a big question. I've been involved. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, I, I've always have been since in my early twenties, uh, when I was a Christian, a committed. You know, I wasn't brought up as a Christian, but I became a a born again evangelical Christian in my early twenties. Um, I was attracted to the gospel message, the evangelical gospel message. Um, so you know, I I heard people like Billy Graham and my local Baptist church, where I became a uh, a Christian. Uh, I can remember the the date, the day, the time, like you do when you are born again and um, in the manse next to the Baptist church um, uh, near where I live in London. And um, and so that that began the great uh, journey, really, um, for me um, over the years. And um, it's taken many um, interesting routes. Um, I certainly never expected or planned to end up in the in the the last of the, the three great Abrahamic faiths, Islam. Um, but uh, in the plan of God, that's where I ended up. Um, so um, the Dawah for me is, is comes naturally. I just enjoy sharing, speaking about uh, faith, sharing accurate knowledge, if possible, about the religion generally, not just Islam, but about the uh, Christianity as well uh, in the light of um, academic uh, scholarly um, research. So trying to raise the bar a little bit for myself and others, if possible. Hmm. And what do you think is so fascinating about religion that it really captivates the interests of many people, um, even people who are not really interested in? Because in today's age, you're seeing this move towards this new age spirituality, the, the quote unquote uh, spiritual but non-religious people. Um, for someone as yourself, were you always... Was spirituality always tied to religion or was there also like a difference between the two growing up? That's a good question. Yeah, for me, it's always been tied to religion I, I, because I think if God, uh, I mean, 
come back to your first point, I think what why we're interested is because I think as a species, we are interested in meaning, in purpose. We're interested in the why questions. We see the universe around us. Children do this and ask why. You know, there's a sense that there is a creator, there is purpose and meaning. Um, and that seems to be, as I say, innate in our condition, in our human nature. So I think uh, we inevitably do that. Uh, the answers we may come to may be different, of course. Uh, but overwhelmingly, humanity has come to the conclusion that there is purpose and meaning and that there is a transcendent point of origin, a vertical, uh, sorry, a horizontal pole to our existence, who we call in English God or Allah. Um, and uh, I, I'm, But I've always been curious to take that further because we seem to have, um, when, so to come to your second point, then why religion? Because I believe that God has guided humanity. Um, and so there is one would expect to see a public, um, obvious uh, guidance manifested in the historical process. Um, so we, and then we can ask about that, um, particularly when there are variants on it. So Christians say, follow Jesus. Muslims say, yeah, follow Jesus, but follow him as a, a great prophet, a, a messenger, not as a divine being. So yeah, they're pointing to the same man, but they have different understandings. So that for me, raises theological questions. Who was Jesus? Who was the mm. historical Jesus? Um, we can all, most of humanity, it seems, numerically, follow, look to Jesus, Christians and Muslims together. But they have very different understandings. And so theology or uh, historical inquiry as well is an attempt to grapple with that and come to the truth. And would you say that the the, the character, the, 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 per, the persona of Jesus... Uh, may God's peace be upon him. Was what kind of what was kind of began your interest in kind of seeing what Islam also had to say on the matter? Like, what was the moment where you were like, okay, there's some like, let me look into Islam as a viable option. Mm. Yeah, Jesus was key to that. I, I, I when I was a Christian, I remember um, I was I had I had prop there were problems with the Christian faith. I discovered some of which I came across just by reading the New Testament myself very closely uh, and, and wanting it to speak to me and be true and reliable and and helpful. But there were problems I could see. And so I turned to Christian scholars for answers. And sometimes there were answers, but sometimes there weren't. And then I discovered there were more problems that they knew about that I had no idea. So problems with the Gospels, for example, which I then discovered, which added to my woe. Um, and at the same time, I was becoming increasingly Islamophobic in my attitudes as a, a good evangelical Christian. I was becoming more hostile. Uh, it seems to be a virus that uh, evangelicals, unfortunately, sometimes catch um, that they like to demonize um, Islam. That's very sad. Not Catholics, actually, are, are less susceptible to that disease, but evangelicals tend to get a bad case of it. Um, but I began to frighten myself because it was turning, it was becoming quite sort of nasty, not openly, but in my own mind. And I thought, let me go and investigate this in my local mosque. Let's just talk to these Muslims and find out if their religion really is this terrorist faith that's a threat to Western civilization and humane values. And so I did, I did that. And I literally walked into the London Central Mosque or Regent's Park Mosque, as it's called, which is close by where I live in London. Um, and the people, they were very friendly. They gave me lots of books and I had lots of discussions and arguments and debates for about three months. And then I discovered something that I never knew existed. And that was Islam. 
I mean, real Islam. Um, and that began the uh, suddenly then it became apparent to me that there was another religion of, of great profundity and beauty and depth parallel to Christianity, as I saw it, that offered me perhaps a lifeboat um, uh, from the problems of Christianity, which for me were pretty big. Um, mm -hmm. And Islam had answers to those problems about who Jesus was, about the problem of evil, about um, all sorts of things. That Islam just had solutions which just made a lot of sense, which I'd never come across before in my reading of great Christian spiritual writers, like whether it be uh, St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or St. Paul or Billy Graham, whoever. Um, you know, they're going around in the same circle all the time. And Islam broke the circle and actually took the thing forward. So uh, that was the problem then. It was the cultural um problem it, it transitioning into a religion which clearly was not um english um and but nevertheless universal um and so uh, uh that was my own personal cultural hurdle which ultimately about a year and a half later i overcame you know there's something fascinating about stories of former evangelical christians who espouse you know islamophobic rhetoric and ultimately end up becoming muslim and I think the most famous story is um, Brother Joram Van Cleveren in the Netherlands, right, who was part of the far-right party, who sought out to eliminate Islam yeah. from the Netherlands. And, you know, in his, in his pursuit of wanting to write a book that would, uh, that would, you know, it would be like the canon book on against Islam, refuting it completely, he ended up becoming Muslim. And there's also the famous story of the U.S. soldier um, I believe it's on the AJ Plus. Um, got millions of views. Uh, where he planned, where he he was a former veteran, and he wanted to bomb uh, the local mosque. And oh, yeah. he, right, and you know, one day his daughter came uh, home, and she told him about one of her classmates' mothers who wore the hijab, and he was furious. You know, how could these Muslims be inside of my school? How can we look at what they're doing to my daughter? And he espoused all this hatred and he looked at the face of his daughter and he realized he messed up. Mm. And at that moment, he did the same thing as you and he went to the mosque mm. and he grabbed, you know, some resources and he continued coming back and speaking. And now he's the president of the mosque, subhanAllah. Mm -hmm. um, but why do you think it is with, you know, with, uh, with evangelicals, uh, Christians specifically in pursuit of you know their own form of da'wah or whatever it may be that they have to be they have to villainize islam they have to demonize it what do you think is the reasoning behind it yeah that's a good question uh, um a very a very good question i think i think one of the reasons by the way uh the the, the dutch for former far-right politician and others become muslims is because they're sincere um because other people also study islam i won't mention their names but prominent evangelicals who you know on youtube to also study Islam, but they become ever more radicalized and hateful. So why do some become hateful? Why do others embrace? Because of sincerity. If you're trying to look for the truth and you're open-minded and willing to learn and grow and develop and change, and this is the great challenge, um, then the truth will change you. If, however, you uh, seek to um, uh, understand with a view to destroy, um, then, you know, you'll get your reward. You'll become... You know, shaitan, like shaitan in a way. Um, 
and that's that's uh, very sad. But I think for not all evangelicals are like this. I don't want to paint them out as an evil religion, but um, it is a particularly characteristic, however, in the United States and in Britain. Um, not so much here in France, there aren't that many evangelicals here, but um, is that evangelicals within the wider Christian body, the global church, um, they also, evangelicals, tend to demonize and reject other Christians. So very often an evangelical will say, you Roman Catholic person, you may go to mass every week uh, and uh, a good Christian, you say, you're not a Christian. That's they, they say this very typically, you're not a Christian at all because you don't believe my particular understanding of Paul's soteriology or my understanding of whatever or you know how we relate to the saints who mary is purgatory the papacy etc etc so they're sectarian within their own christian world it's not just they're sectarian against muslims so catholics get it in the neck muslims get it in the neck everyone gets it in the neck but <laughs> because um islam is such a rival geopolitically and spiritually and religiously to, to Christianity, I think Muslims um, attract a special um, attention from these people. I do stress I, there are there's something that's happened really after I became a Muslim myself. The, the evangelical world has tended to bifurcate, I've learned. You get many now who are more liberal you know, evangelicals, actually, um, who are much more reasonable. But the hardline conservative evangelical impulse particularly in the united states but we have it in britain too is is toxic and um, i think it's spiritually cancerous because it destroys your integrity and your common decency and um just sincerity because you're no longer open to truth you just want to attack malign lie in the name of the truth and this is the great paradox um and i'm using a very strong language here but I mean, I've met so many of these people over the years. Uh, it's hard to find language that's strong enough, really. I, I mean, you know, in a sense, I'm not, I'm not even being that critical. I'm just being quite moderate. Because uh, some of these people, uh, I, and this may be a minority of them, but some of them are evil. And um, I, I, I'm not, I could mention names. I'm not going to mention names. Um, because in their personal relationship with other human beings is so satanic, you know, that they will the way they speak of other people in such foul language, using such blasphemous, blasphemous language, and the way they speak of the prophet and the God, unbelievable, you know. Um, and, and actually, this is completely off the subject, I'm actually reading Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, at the a classic work. And, you know, a lot of these people, you know, uh, the, some evangelicals would be very at home in the inferno in in hell because they they have such contempt for other people. Now these are a minority, I think, of these evangelicals. But the, I recognise the types in hell that Dante talks about. You know, the people who are wrathful, who are liars, who are deceivers, who are, who are who are haters, haters of God and haters of uh, other people. That they they exist in all religions, of course. You get some in extreme Judaism. You get some sadly in islamic uh circles as well and they're not the mainstream but um mm -hmm. anyway yeah and, and I, I agree with you that um we even have these people within our own community um they're they're yes. not mainstream they're a minority yeah. but you know yeah. a loud minority can create the perception that the minority is the major is the majority right um yeah. but you know I, I i love the point that you mentioned about sincerity because mm. one of the beautiful That's lessons true. in the story of malcolm x 
is that when Malcolm X was part of the Nation of Islam, Ahmed Usman, a Sudanese student, approached him, um, informing him that the Islam that Malcolm was espousing was incorrect. And it mm -hmm. went against the Quran, it went against Orthodox Islam. And to which him and Malcolm had a short debate. And at the ending, Malcolm told him to give him all of the resources that he had on, the, on, on, on Orthodox yeah. Islam that he was missing. And yeah. Malcolm would continue to read it and send him emails <clears throat> saying, explain what this verse to me, explain what this passage means. And ultimately, that's how Malcolm converted to Islam before he even went on his pilgrimage to Hajj. But that comes out of sincerity. Um, exactly. Too often now, people are only looking for information to refute other people rather than trying to understand the religion. You know, one of the things I love about Imam al-Ghazali is before he even thought about refuting the philosophers like Ibn Sina, he said, I'm going to read their works. Mm -hmm. And he says in his autobiography that after he finished, you know, they spent two years studying their philosophy. Then he spent another whole year just thinking about what he read. Yeah. Just really reflecting deeply. And after that, he realized, okay, these are certain ideas which are certain ideas of theirs are antithetical to the faith. And so these need to be refuted. And then he went about, but today it's all about, you know, I'm going to open a book on Christianity and just try to find a refutation. I'm going to just mm. find, you know, pick up one of the Hindu texts and just try to find something outrageous and post it online. And one is it divorces a person from sincerity, but also two, it just, you know, a person is just looking for, you know, it's a confirmation bias in psychology. I only want to look for things. So um, I'm, I'm curious as to your life, though. You talked about how you, you went to the masjid. But what was the moment that informed you that you needed to go to a masjid rather than just reading, you know, Islamophobic literature? I think I, I, I'd learned even before that that the, this may sound very naive, but, you know, I was about 21, 22 or something. But um, the media didn't always tell the truth about life um mm. for example i'd always been in my teens very a passionate pro-life person i'd always been against abortion on demand i did, it was just me i, I don't know why I'd, I'd always been like that i still am um and, but the way the media the, the uh in britain you say some of the liberal media like the guardian and so on speak of this issue uh in such in such a way to very distort the the the, the pro-life message and the you know the importance that all you know human life even in the womb uh, it should be protected. The way they spoke of that in a kind of very uh, cynical, anti-life, um, radical way struck me as very odd because otherwise they were very concerned with human rights and dignity. So I kind of learned from that that I couldn't just automatically access the, the mainstream media and learn good values from them. Um, and so I thought there's something in the back of my mind said, look, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I should, because I was getting my information from the Daily Mail or whatever the um, you know, right-wing press might be. And I thought, okay, let, let me just have a look for myself, just to double-check from actual Muslims rather than... Mm. Um, now, that was a human impulse. I think God's God's guidance was at work uh, in retrospect. but um, And so I, I, it wasn't a big deal for me. I simply went down the road and walked through the door. And I remember as soon as I walked through the door, it's the same as it is now, on the right, as you go into Regent's Park Mosque, um, uh, there's a bookshop so I thought oh, I reckon I, I know what a bookshop is <laughs> so you know I went I kind of scurried in there thinking at least then I could be doing something you know books I can I can handle books and um because they spotted 
someone spotted immediately I was kind of a fish out of water and they very kindly I, I ended up I ended up leaving that place that day with a huge pile of books which was very nice for me and um, a lot of reading to do an English copy of the Quran of course as well um, so that was the beginning of the learning process but it was never never on my mind whatsoever to convert oh. to this strange Arab religion as I then saw it mm. And it, it, it's interesting that that's how people see the religion, that a strange Arab religion, um, yeah. as if this is something, as if the majority of Muslims are Arab, uh, or in fact, I think if you look at the statistics, I think Arabs are actually a minority, especially if you count the largest, oh, yeah. right, the yeah. largest Muslim population is in Indonesia, followed by India, then Pakistan, well, Bangladesh, right? But the, 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 the truth is, Islam is actually, uh, shockingly, a, a, it is a European religion, but it, it's not just because of immigrants in the last 50 years. It always has been. If you look at Andalusia, the, uh, mm -hmm. the Iberian Peninsula, what we call Spain and Portugal, for 800 years, it was the cultural and civilizational and scientific powerhouse of Europe. And it was a Muslim society. Uh, but we have Bosnia and we have other places uh in Southeast Europe, which are white countries, white peoples. And then they've been Muslim for forever, you know, for many, many centuries. So it's always been a Muslim, sorry, a, a European religion, and not in the West perception, but in reality. And the influence of Islamic civilization on the West has been incalculable and, and something that the West has traditionally denied and ignored or suppressed, with the influence mm -hmm. of science, the influence of literature, um, and all sorts of other things. Um, it's been documented now, it's been recovered and restated. So this civilizational conflict, although it's there, but it belies also a huge influence that Islam has had on Europe and vice versa, or Islam in Europe uh, has had on um, on the on the history and culture. I mean, even in England, we have you know one of our earliest English coins. Um, it was produced by King Offa, an Anglo-Saxon king in the eighth century. And you can see at the British Museum, a, a gold coin. It has the Shahada on it in Arabic. Um, this was King Offa, Anglo-Saxon King of England, produced a coin with in Arabic with a Shahada on it. Um, I mean, you know, I've seen it in the British Museum. Um, you know, that kind of really significant thing. That was, you know, an English king choosing to issue coins of the realm with Islamic uh, inscriptions on it. Why did he do that? That's another story. But it wasn't because he was hostile. Uh, you know, here's a man who was giving prominence on gold coinage of the realm to, to Islam in the eighth century in England. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, it, it, again, like you mentioned, people don't, don't realize the influence that Islam had on Europe and the fact that Islam has been in Europe for yeah. more than a century. And, you know, Almost, you know, you have the Netherlands, which is near the top of Europe. Somehow we found, you know, the word Allah in Arabic embroidered on, you know, some of the Vikings clothing. And the question that arises is, is how did Islam really get there? Um, and someone, one of our scholars, like Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah mentions that in, um, in, uh, in certain places in Europe, even northern than France, Muslims held authority. Muslims were in power. And he made the argument that the reason why the Vikings became so prominent and why they came down to Spain to attack was because of the Muslims. Because Andalusia had so much 
uh, Andalusia dried up all of the resources in Europe because all the merchants were flocking there because it was kind of like, you know, the America of its time. And so the Vikings in the nearby place, they were just losing money. And so they decided that they were the threat that needed to be attacked. And that's what gave rise to the Vikings. So it's, it's very interesting to see that sometimes we make it the case of Islam versus Europe, but we forget to realize that Islam has been in Europe for longer than a century, and especially with like the Ottoman Empire, right? You mentioned Bosnia, but all of really Southeast Europe was just conquered by the Ottomans, which the Ottomans held for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, yeah. The Ottomans defeated Vladimir, um, who is uh, who, uh, who was considered the, the and it, it's, it's a very, that's a very interesting story as well. Vladimir's brother actually was in the Ottoman Empire and he became a scholar. Um, but I believe it was Mehmed II, the one who conquered Constantinople, was the one who also defeated him as well. And obviously we have the Caucasus, right, where Khabib originates from. And them with Imam Shamil, they've held, they've been in Europe for thousands of years. So um, mm -hmm. it's an excellent point that you brought up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it brings me to this next question is where did this it, where did this interest in engaging in da'wah come, come from? Was this something that came from your previous life as an evangelical that you just wanted to carry forward? Yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, but also, you know, if, if you discover some something amazing and many other people don't know about it, it's natural to want to share it. You know, um, So, you know, I was quite happy to, to share. And also it was like, you know, a reformed smoker. You want to go out there and say, you know... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's good not to smoke. Give up smoking, you know. Um, um, you know, because so there's the zeal of the convert. Um, um, but also these days I tend to be, uh, well, I've always uh, enjoyed, it's like at Speaker's Corner, which is a bear pit. I mean, it's a terrible place. But nevertheless, many of us are addicted to it. And it's just down the road from where I live. But, um, you know, one can meet some really great people down there, actually. I met some PhD students, uh, Christians. Uh, yeah, two of them I can think of, top of my head. Um you're really nice people you can have a really good conversation with um and which i just probably wouldn't bump into anywhere else i mean where would i bump into them you know um mm. so it, it's a, a place of there's a lot there's a lot of crap there and a lot of good stuff and um and it's quite dramatic and addictive in a bad sense mm -hmm. but you know to, for the for those of us who haven't been to speakers corners explain to us what, how it actually is because we we see the videos, um, and I think it's a it's a it's a you know one teacher said that it's nice to just kind of learn arguments from, but it's horrible in terms of how you should approach arguments. It's horrible, and like you shouldn't be learning like the the foundations of Islam there. Um, the foundations of anything there, apart from perhaps a, a pathology or some kind of psychiatric course, would be <laughs> a great place to learn about um psychopathologies um no you're right i mean the thing is to is to find people and I, i've always done this find people down there who are worth listening to and learning from for example many people said there's adnan rashid famously uh who goes there regularly uh he's certainly a person worth listening to and learning from history of this uh, all matters to do with history for example uh shamsi and another guy and very uh who does great work you know he, he's very good at just doing his adab is very good his manners uh the way of, he calls to islam i think is very very good um and he's got a good command of many of the issues say atheism or whatever 
So, you know, find good people, uh, look for them, stick around them, talk to them, see how they behave, what they say. And then you can actually learn some some stuff for sure. Uh, I mean, they're a minority. Um, <laughs> but no, Speaker's Court, I mean, in, London, it's in, in central London, in England, there is a big park called Hyde Park. Um, it's near, if you know, if you've been there, it's near Oxford Street. It's near the West End. It's, you know, really central. And uh, a corner of it, the top right hand uh, northeast corner um, is an area that's been set aside by Parliament, uh, the government, historically, uh, where people can exercise the right to free speech. So this evolved uh, over several hundred years ago um, when people used to congregate there because it was a big park public park and demonstrate trade unionists for example and others used to go there and they were you know they used to have battles with the army or the police whatever and the parliament said look we'll set aside this bit of ground where you legally can go there and exercise your right to free speech and so over the generations many famous people Karl Marx went there Lenin went there George Orwell Oswald Mosley um oh lots of famous people have been there uh, over the years um to to speak uh, and I remember there as a child, going there as a child, seeing uh, Lord Soper, who was a Methodist minister preaching. He was one of the last of the great, of that era when a speaker was a great orator and drew big crowds. We don't really get that anymore so much. Mm, and yeah. um, and he was witty and there was heckling and and he was, and I was a, a child, but I, being impressed with the the stature of the man as a public speaker, rhetoric. That's kind of gone now, but... Um, Anyway, so uh, it's set aside for that purpose, um, and it's become a uh, symbolic globally of um, the legal right to speak your mind freely. And so even though I've learned this through speaking to the police and just uh, being there a lot, the law of the land still applies there. It's not uh, um, exempt from any legal restrictions. So you can't, like, say things that you couldn't say five minutes away in Oxford Street or somewhere else. But the the law is applied with a much lighter hand there. That mm. seems to be the, government, the, the police policy. So, you know, even though they might twitch at something, if you said it somewhere else in London in public, that they, they will not be so um, uh, hard line on it, that they will allow a greater latitude, even though the law is still mm -hmm. the same law. So if you were to utter some outrageous, you know, racist or other statement, you know, it's still, it may trigger a legal reaction, but you're likely to be, uh, have more lenience about it. I mean, it's all very much discretionary, really, on behalf of the police. I mean, that's interesting to hear that, you know, there's, there's different rules at Hyde Park. And I think that, 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 that explains why people are able to say some, some outrageous things, which I've heard. Uh, yes. At yes. Hyde Park. Yeah, I mean, there's not different. Well, it's not. It, technically, there are no. The, the, the rules are the same everywhere, but there are they're applied with less uh, rigor uh, than the speakers call. The police tend to stand off a bit from uh, applying the law because it's a place of free speech. But there are limits. Uh, um, you know, if you were to advocate, if you were to stand there and advocate to be a fanboy of ISIS or Al Qaeda and call for the killing of people in London. I don't think you'd be allowed to get away with that for very long. I could be wrong. Okay. You know what I mean, there are limits. Yeah. You couldn't call for the killing of people publicly, on camera, repeatedly. I mean, common sense, really. Hmm. 
But you know, one of the things that I love about your channel compared to something like Hyde Park is that in Hyde Park, it's all about just proving myself as the winner and proving yeah. you know my opponent as a loser. Whereas when I look at the stuff that's on your channel, like your recent discussion with Bart or uh, Ehrman, is that you know it's a discussion trying to figure out okay what is the truth, right? We are working together. That's what this is. This is a conversation between us to figure out for us trying to arrive at the truth rather than us trying to figure out who the winner is and who the loser is. And I think that's something, especially in an age of cameras, like at Hyde Park, everybody has all their cameras with them. They're just yeah. trying to get these gotcha moments and then just cut yeah. the videos out and post them as these clips. And I think it's yeah. very toxic. Not only is it toxic for the Dawa, but it's also, I just wonder the damage that it does to one's soul. One is yeah, no, it's, a, it's a very good point. The, the introduction of, of uh, technology, you know, I've got I've got my iPhone, the latest one with the amazing cat. You know, I'm, we're, we're all doing it, but um, it has affected uh, the the character and the dynamics of Speakers Corner for sure. Everyone's noticed this. You know, people turn up with their cameras. It's like you know having CNN turn up. You know, I mean, they've got their floodlights and their cameras, and they wheel them on. You know, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know. And then, of course, if you're having a discussion, um, you end up feeling feeling as I've done this. You know, you end up feeling as you're performing for an audience, um, and you're aware that what you're saying will be broadcast on YouTube, if not live, then it could be on Facebook, could be anywhere, even Twitter, whatever. Um, and you know, most of the people down there, I mean, the, the demographics are it's male over ninety percent, ninety five percent male. I would say it's younger, 20s and 30s. So, you know, you're dealing with a, a demographic who who are, compared to, say, other aspects, uh, other people, other population groups tend to be more assertive, more argumentative, more ego-driven, um, and more into taking down the opponent in a kind of aggressive way. And, um, yeah, so it's all true. It's all bad. Well, and there's some good things, but I, I think okay. on balance... The place is probably more harm than good, but there is some good that goes on there. Hmm. And now, now, now we can juxtapose, you know, Hyde Park with the things that you're doing on your channel and me as well, where I see hmm. the similarities. We're trying to have these academic discussions on these, you know, big topics. Yeah. So, um, you know, give give give, give our give our uh, subscribers some insight into what what you aim to do with your podcast and uh, what you're currently doing. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, it started at the end of last year, December, I think it was last year, when we were in London in, uh, I think it was the first major lockdown during the first COVID thing. And I, I just purchased a brand new MacBook Pro computer, the one I've got here. And, and you know, I wasn't going out much. Well, we couldn't go out much. I mean, we couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> the speaker's corner was closed. Can you believe it? The first time wow. in the history ever... Speakers, I mean, we've been through two world wars. We've had the Luftwaffe bombing London. We've had the Blitz. And yet that didn't shut Speaker's Corner down. But bloody COVID did. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we couldn't go out. We couldn't hardly go out apart from buying food. So I had my new computer. And I thought, well, you know, I I'm going to make some videos. And uh, because it's a way of reaching out to the world. Hello, world, you know. Um so I did what comes naturally. So I talk about what interests me, which is the books I read and stuff like that. So that's how it started, actually, uh, in um, December, this time last year. And uh, in January, it, start, it started to take off. 
and um, by which I mean subscribers and viewers simply just I was getting two or three thousand new subscribers every 48 hours it was and this went on for for ages like months you know mm -hmm. um and so that was quite extraordinary uh, and um but nevertheless the what so what blogging theology was about it changed and evolved as i discovered what was happening and do you mind um, explaining that yeah so um it started off my me just saying oh um, i, I want to share with you this great book i'm reading um and so i just waffle about it and then um and people would find it interesting and then um i thought well why don't i invite someone on you know uh so uh, i remember it, the first person i sheepishly approached was sir anthony buzzard uh he's a british uh guy living in georgia in the states biblical scholar unitarian christian who i kind of knew about hmm. and so i approached him and he very kindly um agreed amazingly to come on and uh so we had a conversation and he was such a uh a lovely human being and such a good-natured uh person um and uh, we had a really uh, good conversation about theology unitarianism historical jesus the bible etc and i thought wow you know uh, and because it went well and people said it looked it looked good and it went well i decided that i i'd approach someone else and i it was uh, a much more senior global biblical uh, scholar uh, dominic crossan who is um, you know a, a very distinguished scholar and he amazingly said yes as well to come on and at that point i realized i was onto something you know i'd actually broken through a barrier and and what motivated me inside my own intention was I read all these books and now maybe I could actually talk to the authors themselves, hmm. the scholars, ask them these questions I'd always wanted to ask them. And also, equally importantly, share this with other people. Because I thought, wow, you know, I can, if I can... Uh, share this knowledge this research this expertise that these people bring to the subject with an audience who also could benefit along with me that's really cool and um and that's kind of how it coalesced really but it didn't start off with i didn't start off with a channel with a plan of action with a big uh vision like we say what's your mission statement but there wasn't one mm -hmm. there was nothing apart from me a computer covid and well, you know i'm a child of covid um uh, uh and a lot of uh good fortune and, and a blessing from god this has been of course but what, what it's meant for me is that i've been able to now over the months the 12 months to really uh share with people the wealth of knowledge and scholarship and academia that i've encountered in the books that i've read and and in the in the authors themselves and they've graciously come on and been interviewed and so really what i've tried to do is to raise the bar for us all um for example i had a, had a professor on recently a professor of science talking about a a, a Ghazalian understanding or paradigm of evolution we really talked about dr Shrave. dr Shrave and, and he's your he's always yeah. on here <laughs> yes and it's because of him and 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 you and because his connection with you of course that we're even talking now um yeah 
and you know that was a hugely a great privilege and pleasure he's such a nice guy isn't he he's such a, a, a wonderful person yeah um, and um but no to talk to about him uh, talk to him about uh, uh, his level of expertise bringing an islamic particular islamic take on evolution uh is extraordinary and um you know i i find it thrilling i know other people uh, enjoy it as well um and so i i feel a great sense of humility a great sense of privilege that these guys will come on and talk um about these subjects um and uh, to share that with other people with a wider audience is certainly uh, really worthwhile. And I, I'm not sure this is dour. I, I, it's, it's a grey area because some of what I do, because I do other things. I do yeah. the shorts every day. I, I, I'm working my way through the Quran at the moment, into the third chapter. I, I read a short extract from the Quran in a in a in a translation I'm very fond of. I, I do other things like these medium sized uh, uh, um, videos where I'm reading through uh, Martin Ling's biography of of the Sira of prophet muhammad on him be peace which is amazing and other things and other things so there's kind of there's three tiers going on the the big showcase interviews the the shorts and then the medium size uh i do a couple of those a week as well um and also other other bits and pieces like the no design the ironically entitled no design mm -hmm. posts which i which are great fun uh which are basically being very rude about atheists so this is where i my adab slips and I'm just rude about atheists <laughs> by by pointing uh, to some of the glorious examples in God's creation of design. Um, and I say no design, you know, eyes raised up as if to say, you know, what do you mean? Yeah. No design? Have you not seen this? Have you not seen this exquisitely designed, extraordinary creature here? This is a product of random, non-directed, non-teleological, purposeless evolution. Yeah, pull the other one. I mean, that's the kind of the sarcasm implicit in that. So that that is that is kind of dour in a way, uh, because it's basically saying what the Quran is saying. Have you not considered? Look at the signs in the universe. Do you not think that these tell you something about God, life, everything? That's kind of what it's about. The the no design posts. And you know, people have told me they said when you speak to Paul. Uh, brother Paul, make sure you let him know that his meme game is fire. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, your, your memes, you know, and memes are very powerful. Yeah. Because one, you can present, you know, an academic argument to someone, but with the meme, there's some, there are, you know, you have to put emotions within it. Like you said, you, you have some memes you post about like the design argument, like in your videos and stuff. And with the meme, you just, there's a certain, there's a different emotion that's evoked. One that like an academic argument can't uh, um, uh, uh, cannot invoke. So it's interesting to see the different mediums that you're using. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me, when I when I first embarked on this project as well, my uh, intention was just to have conversations with people on a variety of different topics. But now, you know, as I'm you know as I'm you know almost reaching the one year mark. I'm starting to realize that my focus that I really want to do is these academic conversations is because I read a lot of these academic books and I'd love to, you know, bring the author on and just share their ideas with everyone. Exactly. And I think people fail to realize that the academic is the one who kind of holds a monopoly, like almost like that holds like almost a monopoly on the, on that subject that they specialize in. And once they've written their book, 
that idea kind of trickles down and the masses eventually understand it. So if you can convince the academics or if you can learn from the academics, then you're years ahead of everyone because their ideas will slowly trickle down. And so mm. that's where I see the parallels between both of ours, uh, uh, both of our yeah, um, initiatives. Absolutely. It's is the that, same, you know, yeah. Because I think, you know, I think a lot of these books that I'm reading, like you said, are just, they're so incredible, but nobody knows anything about them. Nobody's yeah, even yeah. heard of the yeah. subject, right? Yeah. I mean, to give it a, a real example, and I had a huge privilege of talking to the author about it. There's a particular book, and it's the author's most uh, treasured writing that he's done, and he's most proud of it. I know that because he told me himself on my channel. And the book is... 600 700 pages of academic scholarly work and i've read every word of it and it's called forgery and counterforgery the use of literary deceit in early christianity and the, the author is professor bar ehrman now this is this book is not a popular book it's not meant for the mass it's an academic work and i read that and i remember this is about two years ago and i remember when i finished reading it a feeling of desolation came over me because I really enjoyed it. And why was I unhappy? Well, because I realized I'd entered into a world which uh, and I learned a great deal. But who was I going to talk to about it? There was oh. no one who I could share this with. Perhaps I could find some poor sod at Speaker's Corner who I could inflict <laughs> on. But, you know, this is a high level book, you know, and, you know, you have to explain all the issues and the scholarship behind it and this and that. And, and I actually felt it left me feeling isolated and unhappy and despondent because it really meant I was apart from those people who never knew what the issues were. Um, now, what blogging theology has helped me to do is to be able to share precisely this knowledge and not be isolated and despondent anymore. I can now talk to you about it. And 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 I had Bart Ehrman on and uh, he said it was his most treasured production and I was able to tell him face to face, thank you so much. It's a great book and I really enjoyed it. And I asked him questions about it. Like I asked him the, the academic reception of his book in, amongst scholars and blah, blah, blah. And that Because I didn't know what, what had gone on since the book had been written. So this for you, for me, is, is cathartic. It's, it's uh, you know, it means I'm no longer isolated. I can talk to the author. I can talk to you. I can talk to 115,000 other people on my subscribers and um oh. And, and that's a huge privilege, a huge privilege for me. Um, and uh, it, it really, in that sense, has changed my life. So I can now talk to a wider audience about this stuff uh, and, and not feel that it's becoming so obscure and rarefied uh, that no one else can access it. So mm -hmm. it's, 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 I say, raising the bar of knowledge um to people and i can say to people i mean it you should read this book uh and um because you will then know things that 99 percent of the christian world don't know about their own bible and they should know and it's a scandal they don't know um and, and that's uh, quite a powerful message which um is authentic this is not rubbish this is real stuff um like you were saying, when you read your books, you know, you, you want to get this expertise out there. And that's what I do is it's a medium, a, a way of getting it out there, hopefully. And you know, you, you bring up this excellent point that, you know, people, I'm sure people message you, people message me, um, thanking us for, you know, the podcast, the discussions, all of this stuff. But 
I think it's for me, it's just a real privilege that somebody would even dedicate, you know, 30 minutes or an hour to hear what I have to say or what somebody else has to say. So to all of our listeners, you know, if you made it this far in the podcast, you know, it's just a sincere thank you for, um, you know, listening to some of the conversation, some of the ideas that I have. I, I genuinely thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm sure, Paul, you probably feel the same way as well. Like I do, 50, but I, I see people, myself right? as a as a fellow consumer along with my subscribers, you know, I mean, mm. when I have someone, you know, a great uh, academic on, whether it be a professor Soeb or a professor Keith Ward or professor, um, uh, Bar or whatever, I, I don't see myself as me close to them. And that's the audience, you know, I, I'm with the audience here. I, I'm with mm. the subscribers. Um, and so my role is simply to, uh, well, then come on and hear him, but also to ask questions and try and clarify if he, if, if if a speaker uses terms which are not commonly understood, but you know, I, I'm there to to learn as well. I'm there as a student of knowledge, like everyone else is. Um, so um, yeah, but that's what, that's what it feels like to me. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm certainly not there as a teacher. Um, okay. I don't have a PhD. Uh, I'm not a qualified teacher, um, but I am a student, and I am someone with an appetite for understanding life the universe and everything hmm. and you know it will be interesting that you know both of us when we began this um you know we had a different intention or you know we didn't really have a vision yeah. and now you know both of us are roughly a year in. it'll be interesting to see what the next year or the next couple years yeah. holds for us and what type of direction yeah. we're going and yeah. i think like you mentioned earlier as long as we're being sincere in our yes. pursuit of truth um that that's ultimately what we will be judged for and held accountable Absolutely. for. No, I think sincerity uh, and consistency uh, uh, and try and be humble uh, and and uh, and not be partisan and you know it, it's it's difficult. I mean, I'm not I'm often not those things. And it's 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 uh, but for me, this whole the last year has been a journey because there's so many things I just didn't know how to do uh, with social media using the technology. You know, what is it my audience even liked about what I was doing? I didn't really understand that for a long time. I have a much clearer idea now because they tell me all the time. But, you know, the, it was just discovering a whole range of stuff. And there was no manual that I accessed. I mean, there's plenty of videos on YouTube I've discovered. Oh, how to make your channel a success. And I remember looking at this and thinking, well, I haven't followed any of that. <laughs> I've just done my own thing. So I, I've just been very blessed by God and and and. Uh, and just done what I wanted to do, and um, it's turned out okay so far, uh, as it has for you, and that's great to see as well. And um, well, as regards next year, I mean, I've got to consolidate what I've done. Um, I, I want to go around the place, I mean, globally, a bit more in person, mm -hmm. um, to give talks on um, what I've learned, actually, from talking. I mean, some of the things I've learned are staggering. Um, you know, famously with Professor Keith Ward at Oxford, Professor John Barton, Oxford, and so on and so on. What, what, what they have disclosed about what's really going on in the world of theology and, and biblical studies is not widely known. And I think it needs to be more widely known, particularly by Muslims, actually. Hmm. And you bring up an excellent point that these are the, these can be the mediums by which you take, you know, you take you take the average person, you take the academic and you just bring the two together. And this yeah. is where the ideas really spread. And yeah. I think that's something that 
both of us are interested in because I'm sure both of us are selective with the people we bring on. We're not really opening the door saying anybody can come and speak, but we're very, we're selective. And it's especially the work that we are, have a very keen interest on the one that we've read that's had a, you know, profound influence on the way we look at a certain subject. These are the people that we want on. And these are the ideas that we want to have espoused and permeate within society. Yeah, you're right. I mean, for, for me, it's, it's actually very, a very selfish thing that I do because I invite people on that I really want to hear. Um, and I just trust that a lot of other people want to hear. And it just is the case that a lot of people want to hear uh, as well. I mean, like uh, my recent one with Dr. Uh, Abdullah uh, Swedi, um, the yes. academic from university, uh, Islamic University in Medina, um, he was recommended to me by a friend. I've never heard of him, uh, to my shame. And, um, you know, it's, talking to this guy, a huge privilege, and he's so knowledgeable and so brilliant and clearly a, a rising star. And, and I'm just so um, I'm just so grateful that, uh, I mean, it's not that he wasn't, un, he, he was known before, but he, he has acquired a new audience um, uh, in the English-speaking world uh, and elsewhere, because I put subtitles in all sorts of other languages. You know, he, he, he is a specialist. He's done university courses for a long time, I've discovered, on Western thought, on atheism, on, on the arguments uh, that atheists put forward against the existence of God and so on. I mean, he's... He and he's got a PhD about it as well. I mean, a real PhD, and uh, you know what? What, a, what an honor to be able to invite him on and for him to to. Uh, he certainly enriched my understanding of these issues hugely. Um, now that, that that is special for me. I mean, that's one of the really beautiful things that have happened. Having people like him on and and about a dozen others I could mention as well over the over the last year who have made a difference. I think. Hmm. Exactly. And I think that, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, success only comes from God. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's something that we always remind ourselves of that, you know, we can put in all of the effort that we want. We can, you know, read all the videos on how to make your product successful, your channel successful, but success comes Mm -hmm. from God. And as long as you change, you know, even one life, you changed all of humanity. And so we're about quality and not necessarily quantity. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think quality rather than quantity is the key. There's um, there's a million dower channels out there pumping out stuff all the time and Twitter and TikTok and or whatever. Um, but, you know, there is quality also has a place and um, it's really important. I'd say it's raising the bar. It's, inc- it's, it's basically moving up, up um, above a lower level to a higher level of of knowledge um and and also encouraging people to do something which is seriously not fashionable seriously not cool and that is this reading books this is a book no i mean you know what i mean i don't mean pdfs i mean actual books i got all I mean, this I got all you've got a fantastic actual i mean what i'm reading this amazing book at the moment this is just random ibn timir epistle on worship uh, translated by John Pavlin, who's a, a professor at uh, Rutgers University in the States. And this is a real eye-opener. Half the book is an introduction by Professor James Pavlin about Ibn Timir in his historical intellectual context. What a fantastic book. And I, I really, really enjoy I've learned so much about all sorts of things. Another one I'm still rereading halfway through again yeah. is this amazing book, Jonathan Brown's Hadith, 
Muhammad's legacy in the medieval and modern world. Second edition, he's added some chapters uh, talking about the role of Hadith in, in the in the recent um, Arab Spring. Um, uh, he really, really, I mean, you know, Hamza Yusuf, the president of your college, you know, this work is without parallel in the English language, essential reading. Also, uh, Christopher Melcher, professor of Islamic studies at Oxford, says it's the best thing since sliced bread. We didn't say sliced bread, but, you know, he says it's very, very good. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I want, you know, I really encourage people to read good books um, and, and, and rather than watch YouTube videos so much. Mm -hmm. I completely concur with that assessment that books always take quality over, you know, YouTube videos and lectures and um, always finding somebody to read it with, right? Mm -hmm. Finding somebody out there who's maybe the author has done, you know, a lecture explaining his intention yeah. with the book or just creating, you know, with your friends, creating book circles, book clubs, and just discussing mm -hmm. the books with one another, challenging each other, seeing if maybe there's some uh, contentions against the author's argument and from there, you know, we can really have an educated community. And this, mm -hmm. the statistics show that, you know, the, the, the people who read the most are the people who are the most successful. And so this is, is that right. Gosh. Right. We, yeah. There's a statistic that we published, I think, maybe in uh, one of the Scandinavian countries that said the countries that have the, that are the most uh, successful, the, that are most educated, are the ones who have the highest book per capita read. Right. Oh, and it'll make sense. It doesn't like, yeah. it's not a leap of faith. That one has to make it's like it's very it's very clear right so um you know i if you have any other last thoughts uh by all means share but it was it was a real pleasure having this discussion with you brother paul no i i know um, it's an absolute pleasure uh, for me and um i do encourage everyone to subscribe uh, to your channel i'll i'll certainly send this the link to this around uh, uh, on my channel as well so uh, thank you Ahmed, for having me on it's been a, a real privilege thank you Thank you. And to all of our audience, thank you once again. Um, thank you also to Paul's audience for listening. Um, and this is a real privilege for us to have this discussion and to have people who are actually willing to listen to it. Thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. Please stay tuned to our future podcast and take care. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.